Mr. Joseph Lombard. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. How are you, Sidi? Wa alaikum assalam. How are you? I'm good. It's very. It's a great blessing to have you in the Bay. Well, it's an honor to be here. I love this area. I don't get to come frequently enough. Alhamdulillah. So why don't we just jump in? Um, first, congratulations on the oh, study thank of Quran. You. Thank you very much. I know, you know, we met a few years ago when you were just in the thick of it. <laughs> and I was blessed to see a few... I think you showed me a bit of like Surah Yasin, mm-hmm. uh, the chapter Yasin, um, and now it took you guys like a decade. Is that correct? Just about a decade, a little under a decade. So, if you could take us back to the beginning, when it, the Genesis, I guess you could say, how did it even come about as a project? You know, it's uh, uh, that's a great question because I think about that more and more. It's like, how did I get myself into this? <laughs> <laughs> but um, Really, it came about because actually the idea was from uh, was from Harper Collins. It wasn't like we said, "Oh, let's do a study Quran." Um, actually, what happened is is that um, the publishers at Harper Collins, the editors, they had the idea, and they went to say to say Nasser, and they asked him uh, to do this and be the editor in chief for the first study Quran in Western academia. Now, at first, he didn't want to do it. Uh, he's not a scholar of the Quran. He actually had, had not written extensively on the Quran. It's something that, as a Muslim, he maintained mostly in his devotional life. Mm. I remember one time when I was a student of his at the George Washington University, another student asked him, said, why don't you do a course on the Quran? And he just kind of looked off in the distance and he just said, because it's too much. The word of God is too heavy. And it was really this deep reverence that he had for the Quran that prevented him from going out and, and doing his scholarship uh, on that. But of course, you know, knew the debates about it in the field and read about it extensively and stayed in touch with it spiritually. Um, and it's interesting because I had always followed his sunnah in that myself, that I never, I was trained in, in Quranic studies when I was at Yale under Gerhard Bovering, who also does uh, Quranic studies. Um, but it's not something that I wanted to write about. I kept it as part of my devotional life. But anyway, Sayyid Hussein Nasser, you know, he was asked to do this. He didn't want to do it. And then he realized that if he didn't do it, he was going to have to answer to God for that. And furthermore, Harper Collins, they can go ask anybody else they want after he's turned it down. He has no control over that. So he said that although he realized what a great um, burden it was to take this on, um, that he felt that he had a responsibility before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to do it. I think that um, he hasn't used these words, but I think to some degree he viewed it as what we, we call in the Islamic tradition a far kifaya, that is kind of a, a, a responsibility that if you, if somebody takes care of it, it's sufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody has to do it. And I think that he viewed it as that. And I know that uh, I, to some degree, did. But when he asked me uh, to join the project, uh, I remember very well. We were having lunch, and, and he told me about this. And I, um, I immediately said yes. I mean, there was something in me that just clicked. I said, yeah, this is like, this was what I, the project I was meant to work on. And, um, and so he and I then started putting together some other people for the uh, editorial team. We viewed it as an editorial team at first, but then it became 
the research, writing, and translation team. Uh, and that was actually uh, an interesting part of the process was, first of all, we actually didn't envision doing a translation of the Quran. We went through all of the translations, the major translations that were out there, and um, many of them are beautiful. They've got lots of merits, um, but we didn't think that any of them was really sufficient for a study Quran. And one of the, there are really three characteristics that we were looking for. One is eloquence. That is something that, if this is going to be a widely distributed text that a lot of people are going to be reading, that it really indicates to the reader the register that Quranic Arabic has with speakers of Arabic. Even Christian Arabs will tell you, oh, yeah, there's nothing like the Quran. So we wanted to have the eloquence first. Then, consistency. The Quran is incredibly cross-referential. There are, anybody who reads the Quran regularly knows how it is that you keep on finding these patterns where one verse over here in the second surah or chapter is echoed over here in the 48th surah or chapter, and then all of a sudden, or just a little phrase, and then that, after your 20th reading of the Quran, all of a sudden you put the two together and your mind is blown. You say, whoa, oh my God, that's how these two are connected. So you really have to be able to convey to somebody that intertextuality and so that when they have a translation before themselves, they could actually start to maybe see some of those connections that maybe you didn't even see. And then the third is really what I would call linguistic accuracy. A lot of translations of the Qur'an translate by tafsir in a lot of phrases. And we caught ourselves doing that in many places where we said, you know, wait a minute, we always thought this verse meant this. But if you go into the language of it, that's not exactly what the verse is saying. Uh, and this linguistic accuracy would also be trying to catch why it is that sometimes in the Qur'an, you have the direct object before the verb, and sometimes you've got the direct object after the verb. These are the types of things that you can still catch. You can still convey that in English. And oftentimes, especially in Arabic, because Arabic is a language where because it's inflected, you can do the word order in any different number of ways. And the word order that you choose is based upon what it is that the listener needs most to know in a particular verse. So why is it that here, although God said the same thing in one verse and the same thing in another verse, God put the word order slightly differently. There's an indication in that. And so we want to maintain that. Now, we didn't always do it. And even looking back now, I go, oh, we could have gotten that one a little bit better. Um, but these are the things that we were looking for. And we didn't find that there was any one translation that had all three of those characteristics. So eloquence, consistency, and accuracy. Accuracy, because yeah. I see what you're saying in the sense that a lot of translations will look at what the great scholars of the past have said it meant as opposed to what it linguistically means. And in some sense, maybe you were freed up because you were going to, in the, in the tafsir, in the commentary, you're going to bring those opinions in, but it allows you to just say, what is it linguistically saying before commentary? Exactly. 
what is it, what is it, what is it linguistically saying? Now, we can't put ourselves in 7th century Arabia. There's no way to do that. But we can, to some degree, get an idea of what was the experience for some people first hearing some of these things, and that's most accurately captured on, uh, on the linguistic level. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, the next thing is, how is it structured? For those who haven't yet taken a look at this book or doesn't, don't know what a study Quran is, or maybe um, don't know what the inspiration was, because I, I know from talking to you that there's something called study Bible. Yeah. That I think when Harper Collins approached you, they were looking at modeling that. Mm-hmm. They were, and we did something different than a study Bible. If you look at study Bibles, or in the case of Oxford, they call it the annotated Oxford Bible. Um, well, there's a lot less notes in those volumes. We have done, we have a ratio of about five and a half words of commentary or uh, explanation for every word of translation in the text. And so it's far more, uh, you've got much more explanation than you do. The other thing is that each, each surah or chapter of the Quran has a uh, introduction that explains to you its place within the text, the historical circumstances of that particular chapter of the Quran, and, uh, and how it's related to other places, and maybe some of the ideas of what that particular chapter of the Quran, the place that that has had in Islamic history. Um, and, and then a rundown of the themes, major themes of each, uh, each chapter. Um, and so you've got surah or chapter introduction, translation, and then really what is a, a, a study, a real kind of commentary on it. And whereas in a lot of the study Bibles, you've got your study notes. And they really are. There's, there's, they're, they're very short, and there's far less actual annotation than there is translation. And we have pretty much the opposite. Right. So you have the new translation, and then, and I've been looking over it, you know, you have every single verse has some commentary. Just some, about, yeah. Some verses have significant i mean almost a whole page and some just have a few sentences yeah and one of the most fascinating things is that and i think this is unique even in you know more traditional commentaries is that you this is like an ecumenical commentary in the sense that you're drawing on the vast 1400 year tradition uh people from all the way from spain to you know South Asia, mm-hmm. and all you know, basically this wide swath of time and space, and different focuses. So some you know grammar focus, some you know Sufi focus, some philosophy focus, some law, and you put it all in there. Um, so first of all, that just seems like a very difficult, a tall order, shall we say? It was. And yeah. How did that like? So what was the process? Well, that process is, is really differs for each of the, uh, of the authors. Now, while, while we're listed there as the editors, all of the general editors, um, that is, uh, Jenner Dale, um, Maria Dekeke, and myself, or Dekeke, sorry, and myself, and then Mohamed Rustam, the assistant editor, the four of us are the ones who wrote the commentary and researched the commentary. And that, again, was one of the things that we didn't originally envision it that way. 
we thought that we were going to go out and get other scholars. But then we realized that to kind of maintain a unified perspective, we needed to keep the workflow that we had had when we were working on the translation so that everything could really be deeply integrated. And especially because the Quran is so cross-referential, um, we needed to be able to say, okay, we've dealt with that in Surah so-and-so, so we don't need to write a commentary on this verse again here, or we don't need to go into the topic of, let's say, for example, facade, corruption. There's only one place where you want to have an extensive commentary on that, and then another place, as you say, see commentary on such and such. So to keep that integrated nature, we ended up writing it. But each one of us, the four of us who were writing it, we had a little bit of a different approach. And any textual scholar could go through and identify it, and who wrote which commentaries identified in the beginning. So you go through and you look at it. So there's that. But there are some things that, did, that do bind it. Um, one thing is I can talk about for myself. I wanted for every single, um, for every single chapter of the Quran, I reviewed what are called the, the historical contexts, which is how I translate the Asbab and Azul. People call it occasions of revelation. Saying occasions of revelation means nothing to a non-Muslim. So calling it historical context is better. Um, and then I looked at um, I looked at other readings. Just for those who don't know, the Quran has what are known as seven canonical different readings, which involve usually different inflections in different places of the words. Um, and, uh, and then there are three more schools that are known as the, the widely or mashhur, the widely known readings. So that makes ten different readings of the text. And sometimes they actually lend to significant differences. And so I looked at those uh, as well. So that was kind of my baseline. Um, and a lot of what are called the historical contexts, you know, they're not considered very weak, and sometimes they don't really actually shed much light. So we don't use them all, but I looked at them all in every instance. Um, and then from that you build out, if you have a, a significant word or if the root of a word and its place in relation to other words is uh, significant, then we'd also bring out these kind of linguistic commentaries and talk about you know, the, the different ways in which a verse could be read and how that would lead to different meanings. And beyond that, different commentators have different strengths. So let's say that you had something that was talking about divorce. You really should go to a commentary like Al-Qurtubi, who deals with legal matters, um, as, uh, as does um, uh, Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi, his Ahkam al-Qur'an, or rulings of the Qur'an. So go to these more legal-based uh, commentaries. But then there are other ones for which it's, you know, just what you would call these verses that really pertain directly to the spiritual life. And a lot of commentators will deal well with them, but in some instances you really need to go into more Sufi-oriented commentaries because the fundamental focus of these commentaries is the tarbiyah or the training of the soul. And really, when you want to talk about the training of the soul, what is the training of the soul? It's the preparation of the soul for the meeting with God. And when you want to look at that, you know, this is what is really the focus of these commentaries. And so we would go to Sufi commentaries for things along those lines. And then other places, like you have philosophical points are brought out. And in some instances, there are some verses where, for some reason, the, all the commentators decided to have a debate about God's free will on this verse. It just became the verse for the debate. And so, <coughs> excuse me. 
there are some verses for which you really went into almost, you know, a commentary that would represent every major school of thought throughout the Islamic tradition so that we could accurately represent particular debates. And you chose to deal predominantly with classical or pre-modern commentary as opposed to some um, you know, English um, books about the Quran that are predominantly either Westerners, Western Islamic study scholars, or taking you know, modern Muslim scholars' commentaries on the Quran. Why was that? That's an excellent question, and it's one of the things that some people um, are say, oh, but they didn't you know, use X, so they didn't use Y. Well, first of all, you can't use everything. But secondly, um, right now, the field of Quranic studies is inchoate. It's coming into shape. It's been a field that has been, uh, that's been left aside, uh, while some other fields within Islamic studies um, have developed in the West. Um, there are many reasons for that, and, and some of it has to do with this rise of revisionist strands that I think, quite frankly, set the field back several years because people had to have debates about really things that weren't even theories. They called them theories, but they're really just consistent sets of assumptions. Um, and, um, and if you look at them as theory, because a theory is something you can test, and if, it doesn't, if the data doesn't match, then you throw it out. But if you want to stick to it after the data doesn't match, then these are just assumptions. Now, if you go through the history of Western scholarship on the Quran, there are so many different approaches, especially when you start bringing in revisionist approaches to the text, that it is too methodologically diffuse for one to ground a study text within them. It would literally, I mean, you would pick it up and you just say, I don't have any idea what this means. <laughs> so for, that's one reason why a lot of that can't be used. Another reason is that there has been a tendency within the Western academic approach to the Quran to deeply disrespect Islamic academic approaches to the Quran. I think Bahnam Siddiqui puts it very well when he talks about the way in which the history of the text has been treated in Western academia. And he says, it's as if what they have done is they have made a molehill out of a mountain by ignoring a ton of scholarship and a ton of data that is out there. And so what we feel needs to happen is that the field needs to be resituated to deal more with what these classical commentaries actually had to say and what the fields of ulum al-Qur'an or the sciences of the Qur'an actually had to say. Within biblical studies, the study of the text as text is really mostly a historical study and then the study of Bible commentary is another field of study and there's only a tiny little bit of overlap. Now, that doesn't have to be the same thing that we do within Quranic studies. And we need to make that decision after we have looked at the text, after we have looked at the commentaries. We don't need to throw out the commentaries a priori. And so we really want to have this where somebody can look and relate this 
to the commentaries and see what can actually come about by working with the commentary tradition. Now, I hope you don't mind if I go on with one, one more very important point here. <coughs> when you come up with the historical critical questions that the Western academic tradition poses regarding the Quran, these are questions that Muslims had as well. There is a ton of literature and a ton of stuff in the commentary tradition which is really dealing with the history of the text. Could this verse have come at this point? Could it come at this point? After, so yes, they all take revelation as a given. But after that, they're really just concerned with the question of history qua history. So we cannot, as historians in the modern era, reconstruct our own history without taking account of all the work that all of these other historians of the text have done. And this is one of the major things that needs to happen within the field of Quranic studies, is to resituate it and take that stuff seriously. And that's the baseline of the Quranic commentary tradition. Some people want to cast it aside and say it's just, they're just dealing with the Esbab and Nazul and they're just recounting them. No, that's not what's just happening. They're discussing the history of the text. And we think we are discussing the history of the text. We can't do that if we're not in dialogue with the conversations that the classical tradition was having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think it was Rumi who said, <clears throat> the Quran is like a shy bride. It doesn't unveil itself easily to, to everyone. And I think that's interesting in the sense that you know, a lot of people that pick up the Quran, Western English translations, they're kind of perplexed at how, first of all, it's not linear. Oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's very interwoven, and it's a few lines about this story, then something else, and changing uh, perspective, first person, second person, third person, all these things. And actually, I think, as a poet, I really appreciated that. I yeah. really loved it. And I think it's no... It's no question why the Islamic world is the world of poets, that like they're all taking from the Quran. And you can see it from Rumi to Hafid to, you know, Ahmadu Bamba to Ibn Arabi, all the way across Imam Busiri. It's all this kind of commentary on the Quran and bringing it to life in another, in a poetic way. But I remember when I first started reading the Quran, it was Yusuf Ali's translation. And the reason that I love that, and I did a khatim, like I've read the cover to cover in a few, in a month or two. And what I loved about it is that there's all that, the footnotes. And I really feel like when you read the Quran without any footnote or any commentary, it seems to me that the Quran is assuming, as it's speaking to the, the, the desert Arabs, that they, um, they have heard of this story, that they have an a idea of reference of what's being referenced. And so the whole story isn't told. It's just saying, remember this? You guys know yeah. this story of Moses and this. You've heard the story of, of Hood, Prophet Hood and this and that. And so it's, it's as if Allah is highlighting or drawing the particulars of the story that need emphasis in that moment. Is that... Oh yeah, no, that, that's definitely that's that's a that's a part of it. I mean, for sure. And, the, and it's like you say, 
you really do need to know, you know, okay, and uh, remember when Hood said to his people, it's like, if you're not kind of like, Hood, right. what? You know, and, and so a commentary is often necessary, especially for people in, in our day and age. So you do need uh, these notes to get it. But there's a very interesting point that you bring up here, which actually also relates to what you said about Jalaluddin Rumi, talking about it as a bride, is another reason why the Quran is jumping around like this. It's, you know, this confuses a lot of people coming to the Quran from the outside. But it's really because the Quran is a text that's built for intimacy. Think about it when you have a conversation with a good friend, or even when you have a, when you have a conversation, like people are in love, and they're like sitting there like, oh, wait, we just spent the whole night on the phone. The conversation wasn't linear. You didn't have one topic and say, okay, well, now let's move on to talk about this. You know, there was nothing in intimate conversations with the people with whom you are closest. There's nothing linear about your conversation. And sometimes a slight illusion is all you need to convey a point to the people with whom you are closest. And this is the way the Quran works. And that's part of what develops your intimacy with God, as as you do realize that, and as you start to be able to go with that flow of that conversation, you know, it's like, oh, now, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going in this direction. And so it really is this beautiful way of drawing the soul into God. And that is like, you know, people talk about the soul being penetrated with the word of God. And it's, it, you, you just get to be mingled with it, and that's how it has. Just like when you have that intimate conversation with somebody you love, you feel transformed. It's the same way with that. And linear text isn't going to do that in the same way. Yeah, and like you, you, know, you bring up, it's, it, is the, it is meant to be Recited. It is the recitation of Quran, yeah. and it is meant to be heard. It is meant to be a lived experience, and you know, in in many ways, I mean, you look at there's people in West Africa who have never actually seen a physical mushaf, a physical copy of the Quran, but they memorized it. Yeah, right. It is, and that is how the the uh, you know the Sahaba they were. They were people who pr- their predominant mode of learning and of experience was oral. They were an oral tradition, you know? And I think that is lost. I mean, a few days ago, I actually was I'm moving, and so I took went to Moe's Books in Berkeley, which is a really amazing bookstore. It's like four floors. And I was trying to sell some books that I don't have room to store. And I there was a, actually an all-Arabic Quran that I had. And the woman who was looking at the books, can we buy this, can we not buy this? We don't want this, we don't want this. How much does this work? She was looking, and she was like, what is this? <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is the Quran. She goes, I thought it was a Quran. She goes, but is it the whole Quran? It's so small. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, that's the Quran, the entire Quran. She goes, wow, it's so small. You know, people think the Arabic Quran is actually not that long. I mean, many people memorize it. Um, But in English, it's hard. So was that a real difficulty in in translation is 
the Quran says so much with so few words. It's like, how yeah. do you translate that? Well, you don't. I mean, th- this is one of the problems that you have with many of the translations into English is that they put these things in brackets and in different places. And if, again, to go back to that analogy of an intimate conversation, with the people you know the best, you need the fewest words. You, know, you can just say, you know, sometimes somebody who you've known for a long time, like even somebody you grew up with, you haven't seen them for five years, you could like just, you know, do a hand sign. And you just said more to that person with a hand sign than you can say to another person in an hour conversation. And so these little, these uh, kind of, you, some people think of them as voids, but it's really things that they, you know, it's meant to be there. This is you know, the word of God to human beings. There is, the Quran is the one and only book that every single word, every single vowel, you can say, why is that there? Why is that like that? Because we know that the author knew what he was doing. <laughs> you know, many other authors, they might have, uh, was having a bad day or something like this. They didn't catch that in an edit. But here we know the author knew what he was doing. Um, and, uh, and so all of that, you know, it's something that a lot of times people, you know, you say, why isn't there, like, if this is Arabic, this is a translative verb, there should be a direct object in this sentence. It's like, no, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended for there to not be a direct object there and for there to be lots of different interpretations because when you put the direct object in there, that reveals something about you. And ultimately, when you're reading the Quran, it's not just revealing God to you, it's revealing yourself to you. Mm. And this is the thing that, you know, when you want to come out and like, you know, why did so-and-so interpret it that way and -and so-and-so interpret it that way? Well, these are human beings. They have historical contexts. But also it's because that was what was in his heart. You know, and that is what came out in that particular interpretation. And so the Quran really, it's one of the things that that I think is is not fully captured and always appreciated uh, when people read it, is that the Quran reveals who you are. Well, that leads me uh, to another question, which I was really, as I was thinking about talking to you about this, the first question that I was like, I'm really curious about is you spent all this time with the Quran, with the commentaries of the Quran by the great sages and masters and scholars and mystics of history. Years and years and years, a decade. Um, and I just think of the kind of year I took writing my master's thesis and I was on Imam Ghazali's Ihya and I was looking at his concept of knowledge and mystical knowledge and how does knowledge transform and what is the heart of human psychology and what is unveiling and how does it happen and just reading Imam Ghazali over and over again for a year and then reading the commentaries on it and reflecting on it I realized that it started to change fundamentally the way I saw the world. And I started to almost have this, I would say, like Ghazalian paradigm. Like I started to see things in the way that he was seeing things. And, and so when I thought about sitting down with you, I was like, what does it do to one's soul? And what, how does it change one's doors of perception, if you, if you will, to, to engage like that? 
Well, how does it change one's doors of perception? It depends on who that person is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said before, it's, it's, it's going to bring a different thing out of each person's heart. Um, but I think that for me, there were many things. I mean, over time, many I came to see many things in different ways than I had before. Um, and one of those things that I think is deeply valuable comes out of the Quran, and it's really clear, is that everybody knows the truth. Ultimately, deep down, the soul knows where it stands with God. And a lot of what we do in our lives and the things that we do is because we're trying to run away from that reality. We're trying to run, run away from that truth. Have it a different way. The soul knows. And the sooner you come to that reckoning, the better off you're going to be. And that's why the whole of the Quran, really, if you want to talk about what it's trying to say to the human being, you're going to die. You're going to die. And you're going to meet God. And at that moment, everything's going to come out. At that moment, you can't hide from it anymore. So stop hiding now. And the sooner that you come to terms... With that, the easier everything else is going to be for you. you know, and, and like you think about that. That's the way it is with everything in life. If you're in a bad relationship, the sooner you come to terms with it, the better off it's going to be for you. If you keep on running up debt and you're living on credit cards, the sooner you come to terms with it, the better off it's going to be for you. you know, that just goes throughout life on everything. You know, Doing drugs or something, whatever. The sooner you come to terms with it, better off it's going to be. Mm. And the Quran is just like this, man. Just like the sooner you come to terms with the reality of the human condition and the reality of your relationship with God, the better off it's going to be. The better off you're going to be and the better off everyone's going to be and the better off the world is going to be. It's beautiful. So when you're looking at over all these commentaries, over a decade, after having done that, is there any one specific comment, you know, commentator that you really resonate with, that you just love the most? Jalaluddin Rumi. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is one of the things we got to realize is, you know, um, Jalaluddin Rumi was read by many as a commentary on the Quran. For a lot of people, like that, that was how they understood the Quran. For hundreds of years, this is something people have forgotten in the modern context. You know, there are many people for whom the Fusus al-Hikm, not the Fusus, sorry, the Futuhat al-Makiyya of Ibn al-Arabi was how they understood the Quran. Uh, so really, my, my, those were my first ones. But in terms of what is, is considered to fall technically within the genre of tafsir, um, I love Ibn Ajiba. Uh, for two reasons. One, the tafsir itself, he divides it into two parts and even says they can be read independently. One is the tafsir, which is really kind of mainline Sunni Sunni teachings regarding this. He really gives a great summary of them and he does it in a very effective way that, that just cuts out a lot of the jargon that you might find in some of the other commentaries. 
And then he gives you what are called isharat, or spiritual illusions. And those illusions are often, you know, they draw from like Ruzbihan Bakli uh, and, uh, and others along those lines and, and, uh, and also the tafsir of, of Kushayri. Um, so those ones are also, you know, beautiful and very well done. So that's really one of my favorites. Um, so would you say he gives kind of the, I guess, exoteric and then an esoteric commentary? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And, uh, you know, I also um, love Maibudi. Um, uh, it's tafsir. It's written in, it's it kind of, you know, most Persian tafsirs are both Persian and Arabic mixed mm-hmm. together. Um, and so it's really in both. Um, but again, he actually does three levels of commentary. And then when he gets to his, what is the more esoteric uh, dimension of his uh, of his commentary, it sometimes it just, just blows your doors off, um, and this is really I mean, it, and it's it's also just historically it's very interesting because that's actually the beginning. Uh, he's at the, the time that his tafsir is written is the beginning when all of a sudden all these teachings that became what we know as the Persian Sufi love tradition when they started being being written down. And so there's a lot of those early seeds of that tradition in his uh, in his commentary as well. Did you look at um, Rosali's translation or commentary rather? The commentary, or I mean, because there's there's the the commentary which is just in um, manuscript, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and and actually that's something I have to look into personally to see if it's actually of his pen. Mm-hmm. Um, but because I haven't actually seen a lot of scholarship uh, on, on that to be able to really confirm it. So I'd, I'd like to look into that personally. So no, mm-hmm. I didn't work with that. But I actually did look at a lot of things that he says in various places. He has tremendous insights. Um, and you find them throughout the Ihya uh, and, uh, and other texts. And so, yeah, actually, like, for example, his discussion of uh, the names and the meaning of the names actually went to that in several instances um, you know, so, so for example, in Surat al-Hajar at the end, or Surat al-Hashar at the end, where it has the discussion of the, um, of it has the longest list of divine names mm-hmm. in, that occurs in any list in the whole Quran, I went to um, Akhazali uh, to look at that. Also, to kind of understand the name Al-Latif, uh, I went to, uh, to Akhazali. Um, which is, you know, I mean, and that was really, I, didn't, I actually didn't realize that that name really kind of means uh, the one who is kind and the one who is subtly aware. Um, and it's interesting because if you think about it, it's where, who is aware of subtleties, of the subtleties of things, because it's when you're aware of the subtleties of things that you can be most kind to others because you understand the issues that they're having at the same time. And so like, and it's like that long, so you can understand to be patient and let things unfold and be kind with people. And it's a beautiful combination of those characteristics within that one name. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, I always try to ex- explain to kind of people that I'm talking about, about the Quran, that traditionally before you kind of really study the Quran, you had to study the, the pre-Islamic poetry Right, to understand the context yeah. or even like the psychology of the, the individuals. And I think that's such a, an important thing. And I think that's, you know, the commentaries can bring that up in a yeah. way that, because we all, I mean, that's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, you know, in my travels and my studies is that two kind of conclusions I've, I, I firmly believe is that one is the vast majority of people are good people. 
they're good-hearted people, and they care about people. But the second point is that most people are naturally ignorant of what they haven't been exposed to, and even maybe fearful and have stereotypes and this and that. And, you know, it's so interesting when you travel the world and you think about the fact that, you know, whether someone's in America, whether they're Democrat or Republican, whether they're liberal, their views on abortion, their views on this and that, a lot of it has to do with what state they were born in or what neighborhood or what family. And, you know, religion, if you were born in India versus if you were born in Japan versus if you were born in, you know, Senegal, you would, you know, versus Spain, you know, you would have grown up in this family, you would have had this paradigm. And so I think one of the most liberating ways to get outside of your kind of individual inherited worldview is study, right? Especially like good literature and history and art, and then travel, also just seeing. And so I think if you go back in time and you're reading the words, human beings wrote uh, f- from a thousand years ago in a totally different context. It, it takes a while sometimes to kind of like check your own assumptions at the door, but eventually it can really be illuminating. And it, it's, a, it's an interesting commentary because this is actually something you'll find. Even the companions of the prophet, peace be upon him, they even said, you know, I didn't know what such and such a word meant in the Quran until I heard two Bedouins. There's a famous thing when Ibn Abbas said, you know, I didn't know what fatr samawati wal ard, that God is the one who usually we translate as originates the heavens and the earth. I didn't know what it meant until I heard two Bedouins arguing about a well. And one of them said, uh, you know, uh, I'm the one who, who, who dug it, who split it open. Uh, in a sense, and um, and it's like, and then I understood what that meant, and so, and this is also, you know, one of the things is the, the Quran tells you over and over again, travel the earth, and it really is an injunction to go out there, break out, break out of your paradigms, break out of these things, look, see how other people experience the world. <coughs> so now that you know, you got you've released this. This uh, text. Finally, it's kind of given birth into the world after this long gestation period. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, how has the reception been? And what has the, the kind of the pray? Because I've heard people like Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah say this is an event in the English language. This is a important moment in the history of the English language, you know, really putting it in those type of terms. And then on the other side of things, you also have heard some critiques and people saying, you know, saying a lot about it on, you know, of course, human beings going to be critical of everything. So how has the reception been? Well, um, you know, I want to um, thank the people who have criticized uh, the study Quran. Because there's a famous uh, saying uh, in Arabic, it says, um, whoever doesn't have a critic, he's a donkey. <laughs> and it's true. If you're trying to please all the people, then you're nothing but a dumbass. Um, and, um, and we knew we weren't going to please all the people. And in fact, um, if this particular work is 
criticized by people from the Western Academy for not doing X, people from within the Sunni Islamic tradition for not doing Y, people from within the Shiite Islamic tradition for not doing Z, and then Sufis for not being esoteric enough, or this, that, and the other thing, then we've succeeded. We're not trying to please any single one of those groups. This is not a, and this is what distinguishes this from a, um, from a tafsir, is that if you read the history of tafsir, most of them, practically all of them, are written from within a particular school. And there's always going to be something that argues for the perspective of that particular school. I mean, there, one could do a fascinating study of the way in which in the Sunni tafsir tradition, you gradually have more and more and more verses that are said to refer to, uh, to Sayyidina Abu Bakr. I'm not saying there are not Quranic verses that refer to him, but all of the ones that the tradition comes to say refer to him, I don't think so. Um, and so, you know, you see how these things uh, uh, develop uh, in all of these different ways. And, um, and one starts to realize that, um, that the Quran isn't going to be contained. In any one human perspective, the Quran isn't going to be contained in any one school of thought. This text, this goes back to the very first point that you asked me about, about, you know, why did you do this and stuff? I've come to realize that the first study Quran had to be done by people that weren't actually working within a particular field within Quranic studies before they did it, because it really has to be something that's going to help establish a new paradigm for how we do this. When you establish a new paradigm, people aren't going to like it. It's challenging other paradigms that are out there. But Every single major paradigm-shifting text in any religious tradition always had its critics. And so this text has to have its critics. And I'm not saying that this is going to be the paradigm shifter, but if it is, as Omar Farouk Abdullah has said, and other people have said, and only time is going to tell this for us, but if it is indeed, then it's going to have its critics. It is a necessary part of the process. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I've loved it. I've, uh, I've learned something new on every page that I've read, you know. And I actually really appreciate the uh, ecumenical approach, if you will. The fact that you're getting a vast array of perspectives and you're getting exposed to different, even conflicting viewpoints. And I think that that is healthy and that's really beautiful. And, you know, one of the critiques that I heard, you know, some teachers or, you know, kind of prominent people in the Muslim community in, initially come out really supporting the study of Quran, and then all of a sudden there's a little debate, and they said, well, I have some reservations about certain approaches or certain aspects of it, and a lot of it is along the line of, quote-unquote, the perennial approach, and, you know, part of my feeling about that. And I heard one of the, I think Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, someone told me, like a, you know, CNN or someone called him, and they were like, we were doing something about the study of Quran, and we wanted your opinion, and we were a little bit surprised that we called some certain Muslims, and we thought they'd be so excited that this, this came out. And they were actually 
you know, banging on it, basically, like had negative things to say. And they're like, why aren't Muslims happy about this? You know, and Sheikh Hamza was saying something like, I was embarrassed because it's like, why do we always cut things down? Like, can't you see the abundant good? And that's not to say things can't be critiqued. That was what I'm getting at is like, I feel like there's a little bit of an infantilization of uh, the community by some quarters in the sense that there's this fear that if people are exposed to differing viewpoints, it will somehow harm them. As, and, and that is in some ways admittance of failure that you haven't kind of prepared, you, you could say, or you don't trust that people can hear divergent viewpoints and come to their own reflections and their own understanding. And I think it's maybe understandable if someone lives in a very traditional environment where they're exposed to, you could say, a, from a certain school's perspective, a pure understanding of the tradition that a bunch of perspectives from outside can be damaging. But and we're talking about people that grew up in the West in, you know, the materialist paradigm and been swimming in that their entire life. So the idea that difference of opinion uh, isn't healthy or being exposed to other viewpoints isn't healthy, it's really alien to me personally. So uh, I'm just curious on your reflections on that. Well, Aristotle said that the mark of an educated mind is that it is able to entertain a proposition without adhering to it. So... If indeed, as some have said, our community isn't able to read this and shouldn't read this book, then we failed. And that's just saying we failed as a community. We failed to be educated. We failed to be strong enough to be able to look and say, okay, well, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I mean, look, we've got things within a, you know, a commentary on a particular verse that shows the divergent viewpoints on this all of which come from different schools. We're not saying you have to adopt any single one of them. Nobody has to be in my school of thought. I have never gone out and tell anybody you got to think like me. This is just a group of different ideas that you have regarding this text. And look, this is what makes Islam strong, is that we have these different perspectives, is that we go along these different lines. What makes us weak is when we try to take the absolute infinite word of God and limit it to our relative finite perspectives. That's, I mean, that, that's our strength, is in keeping that diversity. I mean, if you look at Islam, you go to Morocco, and then you go to Indonesia, and you're like, it's like, wild, man. Like... They're so different, but there's something that's binding all of this together. Like, how is that possible? That's a miracle. That is a miracle that you've got one religion that actually binds these people together and allows for their completely divergent cultural manifestations, but you still actually recognize that same underlying you know, tenor. They're like, wow, it's just incredible the way that happens. So, I mean, it's, it's like this, this just symphony that's going on and you want to try to bring that down and that's just you know then to you your religion and to me mine because that is not my Islam um, and so I, I really think that that you know as you said I don't want to I don't want to denigrate anybody because I do think that that at the end of the day 
you have to realize that when people have different perspectives about things, a lot of times, you know, it's because both of them are wrong. <laughs> um, and sometimes it's because one person is wrong and one person is right. And sometimes it's because both are right. You know, there is there, there have been so many who have maintained exclusivist perspectives of Islam throughout time that we can't say that that is fully wrong. And if you want to have the more kind of pluralistic approach that we have said can come out of a reading of the Quran, but not we have not said must necessarily come out of a reading it, if you want to have that, if you're going to be truly pluralistic, then you also have to admit of the place that exclusivistic readings have within that broader spectrum. And so I, I actually, I, I respect why, the underlying reason why some people would come out and say that, and I think that they are being sincere in why they are doing it. But at the same time, I think that what you alluded to is we need to be aware of the cultural intellectual context in which we are working. And why is it that just as many people are leaving Islam in the West as are coming into Islam in the West? And it's because if we don't allow for this broad diversity of perspective within the tradition, and we don't allow for entertaining these intellectual questions, people are just like, I can't find it within Islam, I'm going somewhere else. Everybody goes out in the mosque and you say, Alhamdulillah, somebody embraced Islam today. And I say that too, Alhamdulillah. But nobody's going out and talking about all the people who are leaving out the back door. And we need to think about that. As a community, we really, really need to sit down and think about why that is happening. And I'm afraid that one of the reasons why it's happening is because you have people coming out and wanting to attack alternative perspectives rather than have a conversation. I should just add on as a final point to this. I've had lots of other people send me emails, messages on Facebook, call me up on the phone. Yesterday, I spent two hours with a woman who's a scholar of the Quran who had gone through, she sits down, she brings her study Quran, and it's got like a hundred red tabs with marking on them, and she's got a notebook, and she's going through things. And there are some things that I disagreed with her on. And there are other things where I was like, mashallah, she's right. We should have done that differently. You know? And she did it with pure adab out of the love of the Quran, the love of God, and the love of God's word. Alhamdulillah, I had another, you know, brother. I, I don't know him. I just know him on Facebook. He just messaged me. He said, where do I send irata? Gave him my Gmail address. Here's where you send them. You know? And that's just like, you, can say, you got, you know, mistakes. Like, so a list of errata would be the list of mistakes that you find in this. And I just said, you know, send them here. And, you know, there have been lots of people who've come out and said this. I'm like, you know, yeah, maybe I should have phrased that differently. Yeah, you're right. Maybe we should have included that in the commentary on this particular verse. But, you know, there's a way to have a discourse. There's a way to have a mature discourse, and that's what communities do, sure. and that's what we should do. Yeah, and I mean, you bring up Adab, and the internet is such a strange place, because if there's anywhere you see who people are, if there were no 
outward consequences, you see just the nefs run wild, the ego run wild. There's the way people treat each other on the left and on the right and any paradigm, secular, believers, whatever. And I mean, it's just fascinating that people and, you know, a lot of that adab is lost. And, you know, Said Naqib al-Atas, one of the great Muslim philosophers living, you know, he's really says that, that the crisis of our age is a crisis of, of adab, of really losing a mature, you know, kind of manners and etiquette, you could say. And I've noticed the, the kind of people that came out critical of the study Quran, this is just my personal observation, they tended to be younger, the younger generation of quote-unquote junior scholars, people in their 30s and things like that. Whereas the, the elders, the elder scholars, and many times even their teachers, had nothing but praises and said, what an amazing offering this is. This is a, this is a, a feat of scholarship that has benefited everyone. You see what I'm saying? And so I think, you know, C.S. Lewis said, only the novice exaggerates. So there's something about, you know, that was just my personal, it's the young people, young scholars, young imams that had the critical thing. So, Yeah, it, you know, it, it might be. And like I say, I do think that they're sincere, but I think that one of the things that I've learned from from watching this is is you know, uh, and also some of it was pretty quick. I mean, like as Omar Farouk Abdullah said in one of his comments, that these people couldn't have read it, you know. And it's like, here's a screenshot. It's like, come on, man, you know, read the whole thing. And, and this, by the way, you you mentioned the issue of perennialism. This is people have been tossing this word around, and now you even see on the internet people say like, oh, are you a perennialist? Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the interesting things is it's, I feel like people don't even know what that word meant. And well, now it's the opening point. the conversation in an interesting way. But that, and that is actually interesting, but this is the point. People don't even know what they mean by the word. Right. You know, and some people think that what it means is a person who practices like lots of different things from different religions. It's like you haven't like, read one word of what the actual perennialists have written because that's something that they completely advocate against. Sure. As a syncretism between traditions, where you could just borrow from one and borrow from another, they they are completely against it. You know, if you were to read perennialism from the perspective of Aldous Huxley, you know, maybe you could say that. But the other thing is, is that you know, what is the what does perennialism mean at its fundamental core? The the one thing that you can say all perennialism agrees upon, which is the driving core and across the different manifestations of perennialists, is that there is one eternal truth. That is manifest in different ways. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know what's really unique about the Quran among world scriptures? Ismail Faruqi has brought this out. Is that it commands people who follow that text to bear witness to the veracity of previous revelations and previous religious traditions. That's one of the things that makes us great. Let's embrace it. That is the fundamental core principle of perennialism. All right? Now you want to go and you want to talk about some other aspects of perennialism that you may disagree with. That's fine. But know what you're talking about. I mean, people are going to come out and criticize one author and another author and another author. You haven't even read one of his books? Really? Really? 
You read a book that somebody wrote about him or you read a Facebook post about this person and so now you know it? That, I mean, come on, stuck for the law. This is just, this, that, that's just a crisis of the community. But no, I mean, this is a term that I think people really need to understand and really needs to be defined. Personally, there are some perennialists that I think there's some things that they said that I think they got wrong. You know, and I'll be very critical of some aspects of uh, Ginon's writings, some aspects of, uh, of Frith Joshua's writings, even say to St. Nasser, who was my teacher, there's a few places that I disagree with him. You know, I mean, his intellect far greater than mine will ever be, but there's a few minor points on which I disagree with him. But, mashallah, wallahi, look at Ginon's critique of the modern world. I mean, nobody did it like him. And you have to take account of the fact that he did it when no one else was doing it. The 20s. And then you just think, how could he see that? And he saw this when no one else saw it. And he also saw the underlying unity of these religions and bore witness to them. Now, there's got to be something there. You know, if you're going to say, oh, he saw that, but what he saw over here wasn't accurate, you don't get to play that game. Take a person seriously on everything that they say and admit to the firasa, the perspicuity and perspicaciousness that they have shown in how they approach and how, and, and how they approach things. Yeah, I think you, you said a really important point, and I think that's what draws a lot of people to the Quran is that it's fundamentally it's a making it's a perennial text in the literal sense of that, in the sense it's saying from Adam to Muhammad, Jesus, Abraham, Moses, and many other prophets that we're not mentioning. Because yeah. every people was sent a prophet, they were all saying the same thing. Yeah. And it was all they were all speaking on behalf of the creator of the heavens and the earth mm -hmm. and they were calling to fundamental truth while their you know sharias their their sacred laws may have differed in details yeah. but the essence of the message was the same and i think that is so beautiful and that's for me what really drew me to the quran and that's what came out the first time i read it and so i think that's actually a message that we need now as far as details of how that plays out that those things can be debated, but like you say, I think adept is the key, and really having respect and saying there's these various viewpoints from within the tradition and outside the tradition, and how can we all benefit each other and move forward towards you know true fiqh, true mm -hmm. deep understanding. And I guess the next thing that I would say, and you know, I kind of I saw where you were you were on like television or. CNN or something did something about the study quote. Jeanette Dalle was on Jeanette there. Dalle, yeah. yeah. And I was like, of course, they framed it around extremism and terrorism. And, I, you know, it's fascinating that, you know, over a billion Muslims uh, and statistically, the, you know, extremists are 0. 0.000000000000, add a few more zeros, one percent of the actual community, mm -hmm. but yet how it's framed in the West. Um, so I guess just because that's what people talk about, they say, this is great that it comes out after 9-11. And then all the kind of public talk about the Quran, I think Sherman Jackson, was it him that said, since 9-11, the Quran has been a public document, which yeah. I think is an interesting statement and you know, is important to take, take into mind. So what do you, I mean, 
I, I would assume that the calls you're getting and kind of from the average American or journalist, they want to bring that up. Um, how do you think that ties in or relates, if at all? Or? Well, I think that it's, I mean, obviously we didn't write this book with that in mind. I mean, if you even look, for example, at Jenner Dale's essay on, on uh, jihad and warfare in the Quran, it's one of the shorter essays. It's one of the shorter essays because that's what we think this topic merits as the importance of a topic. It's in there, but it's not like this major theme of the, of the text. It's something that's addressed here and there uh, in particular ways. Um, and I think his essay is excellent for showing you that, that there are completely different things said about different circumstances and that all of these have to do with different circumstances um, when, uh, when people are you know, maintain a standing army and, and things along these lines. Um, but for the media, that's how they need to frame it um, in order for them. And, and I was, you know, personally, I wasn't happy with the fact that it is, but, you know, uh, Daniel Burke, who I think, I mean, I think it's still within that context, he did an excellent article. It was a really very well done article overall. Um, and, uh, but that's how he, as a reporter, could pitch it to his editor. Um, and that, I think, is, you know, for that, that's what, you know, that's what they're interested in, that's what they need to do. Um, I just wrote an op-ed uh, that kind of takes, um, it begins with that same approach and, gets to, and, and starts talking towards something else, but it, it's like that's, you know, the hook, in a sense, within, within uh, the media discourse. And I, at the end of the day, the media discourse comes and goes, it's going to be different. I don't think that that's that what's being said in the media um, is is not all that important. But it is a way in which some people will become more aware of the text and might become more aware of this text and then pick it up and see that there's much more to the Quran than they ever realized there was. Well, we've taken quite a bit of your time, but I think just in closing... Um, what now? I mean, this was such a this took such a huge chunk of your time and energy, and it's such a kind of milestone. Um, what What are you working on after this? Um, well, you know, it's interesting actually. Uh, in response, not so much in response, but a project that I've kind of been working on in different ways all along is uh, is towards a Quranic theology or towards a Quranic understanding of the other. Um, and it's something that I've, I've actually, I've written parts of it in different ways, and some people have indicated interest to me, but, um, you know, Arnold Toynbee, he said in the middle of the 20th century, he said that, uh, that um, modern man needs a kind of a, a religion that can work for the modern times. He said that Islam could actually be that religion. We have certain things in our tradition that are a gift to humanity, and we are the bearers of that within this tradition, and we're not fully bringing them out. And there are certain things in the Quran. One thing in the Quran is that everything that's happening with the destruction, the degradation of the environment, it's all in the Quran. It's all there. The entire warning is there that you're going to do this is there. What it's going to look like when you do it, it's there. You know, we've read those verses in different ways, but now looking at the environmental you know, destruction, you know, it's like, when the sun is kind of, you know, covered over. Go look at the sun in the middle of a major industrial city. You know, and then if you say, you know, when the wild animals are gathered together. Where are the wild animals now? 
they're in zoos and in reserves. Mm-hmm. You know, they said by twenty, by the end of this century, no animals will exist in the in the wild larger than a fox because of the amount of space these large animals need. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's like these things are alluding to things that are going to be, you know, towards uh, towards the times when this planet no longer becomes sustainable. Um, and so this is our, our way of life on this planet is no longer sustainable. So, I mean, these warnings are there in, in the text in a sense. But another thing is that, that I really do think that when it comes to the understanding of the religious other, there's a message in there that is very deep, very broad, and it has not been fully brought out. If it had been fully brought out, you wouldn't have Ibn Taymiyyah saying one thing, Tajidin Subhi saying another thing, Ibn al-Arabi saying another thing, Muhammad al-Ghazali saying another thing, Sayyid Qubt saying another thing, Rashid al-Rida saying another thing. You wouldn't have all of these different perspectives um, regarding it. It has not been fully plumbed, and it is something that, living in our context, we really should revisit it and try to bring out a much deeper and more nuanced theology of, uh, of the other. That's something beautiful to end on. Well, thank you very much for, for your contribution, and uh, I look forward to diving deeper into the study of Quran. Everyone can, where can people get the study of Quran for those who are interested? I think pretty much anywhere uh, at any retail outlet now. I know, I think it's in. in I got the leather one, because there's two, there's, right, there's the hardback and then the leather. Yeah. I, I personally, personally, for my own private reading, I really like uh, the leather bound one. Um, you know, when you got to sit there and take notes on it and stuff, I think the hardbound one is, uh, is, is better. Um, but, um, you know, the, 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 if you're trying to save money, the hardbound one is, is better too. Um, but, uh, no, you can find it any, pretty much any online. I always tell people to go to indie bookstores, um, because I think, you know, we should support these, uh, these outlets, but, uh, you can find it just about anywhere. Alhamdulillah wa shukrulillah. Wa jazakallah khair. Thanks for sitting with us. Thank you. Why do you want to